0: Hello, I'm Mark Basingthwaite, the risk manager here at Alps. Welcome to the latest episode of Alps In Brief, a podcast that comes to you from the historic Florence building in beautiful downtown Missoula, Montana. I'm delighted today to be able to introduce uh, not only uh, a guest, but a good friend, uh, Joe Kashai. And Joe is a lawyer who practices uh, in Soldatna, on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. Joe, uh, as always, it's just great to have you, uh, have an opportunity to visit with you again. Uh, do you want to take a moment and just share a, a, an item of interest uh, about yourself to our guests?
1: Sure, just by way of brief bio, although usually uh, other people do it. Um, well, Mark, you and I have been friends for over 20 years since we were uh, doing uh, technology. Uh, presentations for the ABA Tech Show together. That's right, uh, and and quite a number of presentations after that. So I think we know each other's handwriting pretty well. Um, but for our listeners, um, I got my bachelor's and master's degrees at MIT, where I've been working. I've been working with automation technology uh, since the late 1960s with old hand punch card mainframes and stayed, hopefully stayed reasonably current since that point, even though I'm practicing as a uh, lawyer in a relatively rural part of Alaska. Um, after Georgetown Law School, I worked in D.C. for a while. Actually, myself and two other guys were the first three people uh, to work on a National Science Foundation project tracking the uh, rise of the, quote, information society in America, which actually was a term we coined back in the mid-1970s. Um, I I got rather tired of, I I guess I'd have to say, I'm an East Coast refugee because after that I moved to Alaska where I've been practicing, uh, doing trial practice for the last 40 years, mostly in uh, construction litigation, personal injury, and some real property litigation.
0: You know, I have always, uh, and thank you for sharing that, Uh, every time we have these conversations I learn a little bit more. I've always viewed you as a guy who has been sort of ahead of the rest of us, and that is in part why I uh, entered into a discussion with you last uh, summer uh, about putting on uh, a webinar program for us, and uh, you—well, you, I should say you did it. Although I was technically along for the ride, you, you did all the heavy heavy lifting on this, and I'm referring to a two-part, uh, three-hour webinar series that you did, uh, is still up by the way, available for download if any of you uh, out there in the listening audience uh, want to take a look at this at some point, uh, but it was entitled Using and Misusing Visual Evidence. And my interest, as you recall, Joe, is just coming to the realization that, you know, so many of us, day to day, have these uh, photo editing tools and you know, you come back from vacation and you do all kinds of editing and what. and I started to think, wait a second, this is so easy to do. I don't buy that clients, and perhaps at times lawyers, not necessarily trying to do anything uh, unethical or something, but that, that, that people aren't editing and, and, and doing things with, with evidence in terms of photographic evidence. Um, And so we kind of got started on this program and I'd I'd like to kind of follow up on on that program and just kind of ask again the question, should lawyers be concerned about the ease with which anyone can edit digital photographs and, and sort of follow up to that, why?
1: Well, Mark, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to throw in a little bit of extra background there for a moment. I've also been doing serious photography for about 50 years, ever since studying with Minor White back at MIT. And I actually had a photo finishing lab for several years as a sideline. Uh, it, it's, it's an unusual situation because the digital era really is bringing, to, bringing three different areas into focus. Trial practice, uh, photography generally and conceptually, and then the more recent uh, digital revolution, which very much allows you to make the sorts of work you never could do with a traditional uh, chemical film and paper kind of um, photography aspect before. Mm-hmm. So really, what we've had, what we've reached is, and I would say rather suddenly, is a fairly critical point where traditional photographic evidence just isn't as reliable as it used to be. In fact, I can say that it, it's, ver- it can be, it's becoming significantly less reliable. The concerns we run into, I, I think they're fairly common. I've had cases, and it's not so much the lawyers that are the problem, uh-huh. uh, as the people who've consulted with me about these situations, and there have been several even uh, in our small town in Alaska that have come to my attention, uh, has to do more with clients or complainants who are bringing, um, shall we say, excessively enhanced photographs to the attention of uh, the lawyers, and then attempting to use those as evidence? Every, every photograph is enhanced to some extent; otherwise, it's essentially unusable. You know, you, you make traditional correction. You know, you correct the exposure, correct the contrast, right. that sort of thing. Not a problem there. You know, the sorts of corrections that you can make in a dark darkroom. Um, We're generally within reason, although even even then there's a lot of uh, case law about what is or not acceptable. More recently, and especially the last two or three years with the uh, rise of artificial intelligence sort of neural networking built into uh, various photographic, quote, enhancement, unquote, programs, we've reached sort of a watershed where there's essentially no film photography being done anymore except by people... doing it from the fine arts standpoint. That's usually large format, four by five uh, sorts of cameras and larger. Uh, For the average day-to-day use, digital photography is great, but the problem is ensuring that what you're using is appropriate and therefore not being misused. It's important, I think, to note that using photography to document stuff or to explain is a tremendous benefit. It's the sort of thing which helps helps trial lawyers really go and uh, help make their story really really comprehensible very quickly because we're primarily visual rather than linear. You can get a lot more and be a lot more persuasive with a single picture than with the proverbial a thousand words you know, we're told we're taught in law school paint a picture with words I, I suggest just show the picture instead yeah it's going to be a lot a lot more reliable but people I think are becoming more and more aware of the ease with which matters can be manipulated and I, I would caution it's not just still photographs the there's new technology that I've seen demonstrated by Adobe and others that allow you to go and totally erase people totally from a video. So it, it's not just digit—it's not just digital stills anymore. Yeah. It is digital video as well, uh, b- becoming very quickly susceptible to the same level of manipulation.
0: That's what I find absolutely frightening in some ways. You Me know, too. It, it it just makes my head hurt at times, you know. Sort of, and when when I think about the pace of change, Joe, and, and you know, in terms of hardware and software, you know, it just the stuff is is crazy fast you know I I, I I was sharing i recently read an article about a startup that built a smartphone with 16 cameras on board and i'm sitting here uh-huh. why in the world would one need 16 cameras on a smartphone but you know again, well that
1: brings up a good point mark and i was going to mention that yes. as thick as you're talking there's something called computational photography oh. which is now coming to the fore computational photography can take a lot of inputs And uh, by applying intensive computation, really cleaned them up a great deal. On the um, webinar that we have posted, there are some examples of those sorts of computational photography that go way beyond just going and using, using traditional digital tools in something like Lightroom to go and enhance, say, pull out a face in a video. Yeah. Now, there, there's a certain amount of enhancement that state Supreme Courts around the country have found to be acceptable. But what's become, on video, instills both. But there are also levels where it goes not just beyond um, excessive enhancement, but it, it can start rising to the level of a fraud in the court and you know, a clear ethical issue. And, and it's kind of a fine line there, between mm-hmm. what's appropriate or what isn't appropriate. It's obviously circ- based upon circumstances, but the common thread has been generally to use a standard program which uh, produces replicatable results and provides an audit trail. Uh, more than anything, we're getting back to the traditional uh, evidence rules, 102, 103, 104, where the weight is becoming critical, and the weight you know, appropriately has to be decided by the trier of fact and mm-hmm. whether it's even admissible at all, um, obviously by the trier, trial judge. But when you get back to those issues, what what the courts are starting to say is, we want you to use a program that doesn't allow you to paste a gun from one person's hand into the picture of a total innocent person or paste one face on another. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue that that's critical. So I, I tend to recommend a program that is a non-destructive editor such as Adobe Lightroom where what you have is a database of changes that you've made and you can step backward or forward. Uh, Unlike a program like Photoshop where once you have a, uh, once you've gone and done the image, let's say you've composited two layers, uh, put the gun into uh, somebody else's hand. Once you've gone and done that, you save the file, there's no going back. All the other changes are lost. Everything is essentially lost in terms of prior data being able to backtrack to where you started. So what you have then is the need for looking very carefully at the metadata, all the information about the photograph, what was done about it, and to a certain extent that is embedded in the files. If the metadata seems incomplete or missing, and obviously it, that that's a case by case basis. Then you should be very suspicious about the photograph because it's obviously been enhanced. Metadata, every JPEG file, which is kind of the standard interchangeable format, every JPEG file, by international definition of the the very definition of a JPEG requires that certain data be embedded in it yeah. that have that have a lot to do with uh, showing the circumstances under it was taken, how the camera was adjusted, uh, for example, perspective, which is critical in a lot of accident injury cases, those sorts of things are critical. They're in the metadata. If the metadata is not there, then you're likely to go and be very or should be very suspicious about the about the photograph itself. If the metadata is there, you can go and then start looking at it uh, from the standpoint of traditional case law about what photographs are appropriately admissible or not. And then you know you can see you know, and then, and then it goes to the weight of the evidence at that point. Generally speaking, I recommend that people use a non-destructive editor like Adobe Lightroom, not uh, a destructive editor that bakes the changes in forever like uh, Adobe Photoshop or similar layered programs that they use what's called a raw uh, the raw file raw files are, are all the data that that the sensor ever captured. They're saved as a RAW file if you, if you set it up as such. JPEGs, JPEG and RAW files are two different formats. JPEG, once a change is made or once it's taken by the camera, all the data is baked in. You can't change it. You can't recover all the stuff that's been lost through JPEG compression. RAW gives you the ability to go with a program like Lightroom and step your way from RAW, you know, from the original data all the way through to whatever your final result is that you want to show to the trier of fact, and then prove to the trier of fact what steps you've taken. So you can show, you can go step by step, repeating along the way. That's a feature of Lightroom. You can step by step along the way and show to the trier of fact how you got to the result you're offering as an exhibit. That's often been very critical as an as an admissibility factor for both stills and videos in the state Supreme Court decisions I've read. So, uh, what, anyway, uh, m- uh, metadata, raw format if you can, metadata, try to avoid formats that bake the changes in forever and lose everything.
0: And, and that makes sense to me, uh, but, but I, I'm going to, in terms of what lawyers should be doing, but as, as they handle uh, and use... Uh, digital evidence, uh, visual evidence, um, but I'm a risk guy, and I also, you know, a big part of my job is is looking at, you know, what where where are the problems kind of come up, you know, and I, I guess one of the things I get concerned about is just clients, whether it's an adverse party or our own client, uh-huh. they have ready access to these programs that, to use your phrase, that are uh, destructive kinds of things uh, and and can insert the gun into a hand of somebody that, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and then try to erase the evidence. Right, right. Is Do you think, am, am I, you know, I, I tend to get paranoid at times about all kinds of things, but... Am, am, is that a realistic concern? Do lawyers yes. need to be... I, I've aware seen
1: several cases like that come up in the last few years, uh, even in our small area of like 45, 50,000 people. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's just...
1: I'm, I'm aware cool. of at least three.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think, in terms of our profession as a whole, do you think lawyers generally get that? Uh, and, and No. Uh,
1: uh, yeah. The, most uh, Very few lawyers get it. Uh, But unfortunately, they may end up getting it in the end if that occurs. I've seen cases where people were newly convicted, um, you know, upstanding uh, business people, for example. uh, Somebody had a grudge against them, and they didn't exactly concoct stuff. Mm -hmm. But let's just say that uh, erasing the metadata prevented people from going and analyzing that, in fact, something wasn't, exactly where they purported to be but was closer or farther or whatever if you follow what I'm saying. The perspective analysis yeah. is critical at that point.
0: So if, if you were to I, I, I let's pretend for a moment I'm just a, a young lawyer kind of trying to get into the litigation game and uh, and uh, you become something of a mentor to me. Um, what kinds of things you know what would you Choose to share. I, 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 I guess I'm trying to get at you know what what are the risks that I'm facing if I stay naive? Um, what do I need to just think about generally speaking in terms of trying to become competent in in all of this? Um, just sort of some some closing remarks, I guess.
1: Okay. Well, becoming competent in terms of the visual visual evidence, and I'm referring to both stills and video at this point. Yes. Um, Fundamentally, I think what you need to do is at least stay on top of the sorts of changes that are occurring, uh, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. People tend to be using more and more smartphones, for example, right. uh, as a primary photographic tool, which I, since I come from a construction litigation background in part, where it's often critical, uh, as we showed in the uh, webinar, by the way, construction litigation and personal injury, it's often critical... To be able to go and later zoom in and find tiny but very important details. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the kind of resolution, uh, exposure range, and other factors uh, that are typically lacking in cell phones, then you're not going to have that data. Yes. My my general concern with cell phones is that it, well, I should say smartphones, is that the photographs from those tend to be, on average really not as good as they should be, at a minimum, for um, forensic purposes in court. Mm-hmm. Especially when you need to make a print that's bigger than, say, eight by 10, uh, for the jury to view in the jury room, etc. cetera. Uh, we still need to have prints, if you will, uh-huh. for evidence. You, you, the fact that a cell phone looks good on a computer screen isn't sufficient. Uh, that's actually a very low-resolution medium. It looks good, uh, but not for serious uh, forensic yeah, use. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, first thing I think is to start learning how to use, or at least have learning how to use a uh, higher-quality uh, resolution camera, micro four-thirds, APS-C full-frame digital are good numbers. Any of those will work well. And probably at least become aware of the sorts of things that can be done. With programs like Lightroom or Photoshop, you can't be your own expert and you can't be your own witness, of right. course. But at least you yeah. could start issue spotting. And the issue spotting is what's happening with the metadata, what sorts of new computational approaches may render this less positive, and start doing serious discovery about the nature of the uh, about the basically about the nature of whatever evidence is in front of you.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. You know, how I tend to view this is, you know, we all uh, now, <laughs> I think in today's uh, world, really understand and appreciate, you know, you, you just because it's on the Internet doesn't make it true. And, and I kind of really agree with that, no, that
1: statement is true.
0: <laughs> Did I get it backwards? Let's see. No.
1: no, it's okay. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Well, but
0: sort of, Paralleling that into digital photography, just because we have a digital file, uh, whether it's a photograph or a video, doesn't mean that the information presented in the video or or, or on the photo is an accurate capturing of the event. Well, at
1: least not after it's been post-processed and potentially not when it was right. captured either. Right. Uh, what, I, what I would suggest overall, Mark, is that the traditional evidentiary rules and the, knowing the traditional evidentiary rules, being able to, to go and document what was done to the trier effect, fact, uh-huh. always having an unaltered copy of the original photograph from the very beginning with everything in it, you know, all the metadata and all the data, anything else, it's going to be critical. You know, preserve the original photograph exactly unchanged, uh, be able to show to the trier of fact what has been done to go with the, to basically make your final exhibit, and that it's within the bounds of conventionally acceptable enhancement. Recognizing that you have to prove weight of evidence to the trier of fact it will go a really long way. I, I okay. I don't see, a, I don't see a, a, given the, tradi- the vast uh, changes in the technology of what can be done post-processing, I- I'm not sure that we can come up with a good, hard, and fast technical rule that's any more effective than the traditional rules of evidence, assuming that people get the metadata and analyze it with an appropriate expert, uh, and assuming that uh, people go and, under, trial, you know, trial lawyers understand mm-hmm. basic notion, basic photographic notions as they would affect um, what's seen. And it's always worth remembering that the camera will see things differently than the human eye. At best, there's, a, there's an approximation. Yes. It's, it's yes. not one-to-one exact. Right, right.
0: Listen, Joe. I really appreciate uh, you're taking time to share uh, your insights on uh, what what I consider just a very, very uh, important topic. Uh, to those of you uh, listening in, uh, I, I will share if if you would like to learn a bit more uh the webinar uh that joe put on for us last fall is still available uh, available for viewing and download um it's an on-demand webinar uh, on our website alpsnet.com and uh beyond that i I guess i'll say hey uh, i appreciate all of you listening and uh, have a good one we'll see you next time on alps in brief